Hello, and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Samo Burya. Samo is a founder of Bismarck Analysis, a consulting firm that investigates the political and institutional landscape of society. He's also a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation, where he studies how institutions can endure for centuries and millennia, and a senior research fellow in political science at the Foresight Institute, where he advises on how institutions can shape the future of technology. He is a writer, speaker, and strategist on a theory he's been developing for over a decade called the Great Founder Theory. Samo, welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. It's good to be here with you, Alex. It's, uh, it's good to have you. And uh, I'm really excited to get into your, uh, your uh, Great Founder Theory as well as some of your other work as well today. Um, with that being said, I just want to uh, introduce that topic, and I think we can start from there and then uh, maybe see where it goes. So my understanding of the great founder theory, and this is just a, an excerpt that I pulled, and uh, feel free to elaborate or correct any of this if it's changed, but is that you've described it as a small number that basically the, the idea that a small number of functional institutions have been founded by exceptional in- individuals and that these form the core of our society. And this is, that is some... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, just this seems a decently good summary, right, of, uh, of the overall architecture of the theory. Yeah. Mm. And this is distinct from sort of the great man theory of history in a number of interesting ways, um, primarily in that there's a sort of uh, less emphasis on the historical component uh, and much more emphasis on these exceptional individuals, the ways in which they were exceptional, and also the fact that they put their exceptional, let's say, qualities to use in establishing particular institutions. Who are some of the more prominent examples uh, that come to your mind when you think about this uh, particular implementation of the great founder theory? I think that there is a whole number of positions in society where one might have the opportunity to create something truly new, instantiate what amounts to a completely new set of norms or social technologies, when we think of you know, great man history, we always think of uh, generals and uh, statesmen, sometimes artists, sometimes scientists. And there's certainly overlap in the kind of people you might, you might think of. Um, the difference lies that it's not the general skill at any particular battle that would make them a great founder. Rather, it would be their uh, ability and skill at reforming uh, the army as a whole or perhaps not even in their capacity as a general, perhaps their capacity as a lawgiver, um, mm. as a legal code reformer. Uh, that would certainly, you know, for a successful enough society, for a successful enough legal code, I think that would, that would sort of justify the great founder title. Having said this, I think two evocative examples, one, you know, both very different are uh, on the one hand, Charlemagne, who I think is instrumental in transforming a tribal society of the Franks into a proper feudal society, leaning to some extent on the Catholic Church in particular, which is a, a change in the politics of the Frankish polity. The Franks, uh, you know, as many other uh, Germanic invaders into the former Roman Empire, uh, pursued a different Christianity, right? Arianism, which was considered a heresy within the borders of the Roman Empire. Uh, if I remember correctly, the Lombards of Italy are a, are a good example of such a ruling class that 
was at odds religiously with the you know Romans that they conquered and the Romanized uh, Gauls and Illyrians and so on. Charlemagne's reform was quite deep in that I'm not sure we would have Roman-derived uh, law dominant in continental Europe if he hadn't sponsored schools to teach scholars uh, Latin, right? This is mm. called also the Carolingian Renaissance. Uh, he's a great patron of the arts, a great patron of scholarship, despite being himself, you know, um, illiterate, right? Uh, you know, literacy was not the occupation of a ruler in many literate societies, ironically. Uh, for example, only in the later Chinese dynasties that really Chinese emperors take great pride in calligraphy and their knowledge of the classics rather than pride in uh, things like you know, military command or political acumen. The other example uh, comes from China and Chinese history. I think Confucius definitely deserves uh, the evaluation of great founder. He created a school of thought with closely dedicated disciples that was from day one dedicated to reforming all of Chinese society. Uh, the school was just one of many during during uh, the Warring States period of Chinese history and during the so-called contention of the Hungred Schools. It sometimes is the case that you have the most flourishing intellectual achievements reached in the midst of political crisis. There's an argument to be made that political crisis actually opens up the possibility of thought and more importantly, rethought, right? Rethinking unlearning what you've previously learned or previously thought that you knew uh, and approaching things anew. Mm -hmm. Confucius today is remembered as a traditionalist, but when he's proposing reviving ancient long lost um, rites and practices, of course, you know, these have not been used in a very long time. Of course, what he's to a significant extent doing is inventing new things, whether or not he conceives of it that way reinvention is almost a necessity when you try to bring back something into existence that hasn't existed in your lifetime. And undoubtedly, uh, later Chinese society is very different uh, than what you see during the early Zhao dynasty that Confucius sets out to emulate. So his disciples from day one are seeking patronage at the elite level and have a theory where if you correct you know, the education of the ruling class, and if you correct affairs at court, these changes radiate outward. In a way, we could contrast this theory of change with the Western theory of change, which is sort of, you know, you go to the peripheries of society and then slowly this cultural change seeps in from the periphery into the center, right? We prefer a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach. Mm. But China was a very top-down society. And um, the Confucian perspective was incredibly humanizing compared to the alternatives to other legalist alternatives. Um, the school found itself suppressed at a certain point during the Qin dynasty, um, followed by the golden age of the Han, where it was you know, embraced and hybridized with, uh, you know, with legalist thinking. And Confucian thought among the elite class of Chinese scholars has been sort of revived every few centuries ever since. So really, really an important force, right? You could imagine this as a gravitational pull 
uh, sort of pulling Chinese civilization in a particular direction, century after century, it's not that there aren't other big important factors, such as, you know, the Mongol conquests, or, uh, you know, maritime trade during the Song Dynasty, or technical advancements, or the spread of, of Buddhist teaching, and meditation, and so on. It's just that the Confucian schools keep being refounded, and keep impacting civil administration, and keep impacting law. And perhaps this is where I can tie it back to Charlemagne. Mm. It's not that there are not other successful medieval European kings. It's just that few lived in such a, few lived in an age or an era where the opportunities existed to produce first this expansive political order. And then within this expansive political order, just reform the fundamentals of their society. When later pagan king, kings across Europe are, you know, converting uh, to Christianity, they're actually converting to Charlemagne's model. They're not just adopting Christianity into a tribal structure. They're copying a lot of these, what will come to be thought of as Frankish institutions. Hmm. Um, so it sounds to me like from the two examples that you've given that are characteristic of what you're describing in this theory, um, that in both cases, there's sort of a, a crisis in the society, which is seized upon to introduce reforms, right? And these could be inventions of brand new modes of doing things, or they can be reinventions that is pulling from the past and bringing them up to the future or to the present rather, Um but in either case, uh, there's sort of a, an opening, uh, a sort of a gap in which this change can occur and can be implemented. And then whether or not it's lasting, I, I, I think we can get into I, this is sort of my next, my next question. But do you think that it necessarily um, is the case that there needs to be a crisis point in order for this kind of reform to happen? I think that, you know, if there isn't a crisis point, and growth and evolution and deep reform are successfully undertaken, I think people just call that a golden age. So mm -hmm. uh, I would say that, no, sometimes things just go very, very well. Uh, it is, however, the case, though, that for whatever reason, and actually there are numerous reasons that I've written about as well, um, institutional stagnation can be locked in very quickly, right? So if you have a century or two of institutional innovation, that's almost the best I've ever seen, right? That's the best I've seen in almost any um, societal context. Um, a good example might be, you know, classical Greece, Renaissance Italy, the early modern era. These are periods of intense social and intellectual innovation where importantly, you know, uh, you know every innovation sort of spurs additional innovation, right? Perhaps there is dynamism, a competition. And of mm -hmm. course, wherever there is competition, there is urgency. So possibly what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, the civilization as a whole need not be in crisis, but maybe the city states or the kingdoms or, uh, you know, the religious groups that are undertaking innovation within this thriving civilization, maybe they are in some kind of crisis. And why, why, does, um, why does political crisis especially or political achievement um, often lead to this to these opportunities. I think it's just because uh, so many of the stakeholders are missing, right? Stakeholders solidify 
an outcome, right? The rope is where it is. The only way to move the rope into a new direction is uh, to either pull sideways or, you know, if uh, half of half of the people pulling suddenly disappear. And when it came to various political disasters in the history of China, that was often the case, right? Um, part of the success of the Confucian school of thought rests in that they were able to survive a period of persecution by the Qin. There was a particular event called uh, the burning of books and burying of scholars. And, you know, pretty self-explanatory name. I love how in Chinese history, they gave these you know, fairly self-explanatory names to these, to these events. Uh, all schools of thought under the Qin emperors uh, were suppressed. Uh, a lot of works were destroyed. A lot of scholars were killed. Uh, the legalists were ascendant, but the Confucians sort of survived this filter. So, you know, often the crisis point uh, means that you don't have a lot of competition, which means you have a lot of leeway to design things very differently. Mm, that's interesting. So you're saying that, like, to some extent, the uh, the spur of innovation is driven by competition or really rather like not rather, but by a necessity, right, for, for some sort of change. Mm -hmm. And then once uh, an institutional reform is put into place, uh, there's sort of a, a lack of the lack of competition or I guess the uh, success of that reform is sort of what keeps it there um, through various kinds of effects. I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think are some of the I know it's hard to talk about this in like very general terms. I, you have more examples, I'm sure, than I than I would. But what do you think are some of the characteristics of these institutional reforms that make them long lasting? Because it would be the case that in any kind of innovation is likely to not be successful. Right. Um, and so uh, these are not only. Uh, very innovative individuals in terms of their transformation of their their given societies, but also uh, they happen to, or or maybe not happen to, but maybe purposefully um, put forward uh, reforms that again are are um, are long lasting, or like you described with the Confucian schools, where even though they may fall in and out of fashion, uh, they're continually reinvented. So there's something there. There's a kernel of uh, usefulness or effectiveness or truth, perhaps. Uh, that keeps, you know, getting reinvigorated uh, despite circumstances changing. Uh, what do you think some of the characteristics of those uh, successful reforms might be? I think the most successful reform is the one that um, puts the institution in a functional state, right? I have the concept of a functional and non-functional institution. Um, and I use the lens of functionality um, rather than a more moralistic lens, because I think it allows us to break down, um, you know, break down the sort of social components of a social system that's been significantly engineered. Uh, if anyone doubts social social systems are re-engineered, I just recommend looking at the course of uh, any major war you can think of, and all of the massive sort of social changes brought about through the course of something like World War I or World War II, or even in a Roman context, right, in antiquity or in a Greek context, the reforms that are undertaken in the army itself. And sometimes these armies have very important consequences for the politics back home, right? The Greek city-state with the privileged citizens who can afford the armor of a hop-like, very expensive bronze armor, they are fighting together under the gleaming sun 
and expect to fight together and rely on each other and probably not die because if you have a well-trained phalanx, they're not going to die. Mm. That's one hell of a bonding experience. Like think of our governing elites if they were <laughs> undertaken with such talk about trust exercises, right? Compare yes. that to the corporate trust exercise of like, you know, people falling or whatever and catching each other. Mm. It's, it's a joke, right? It can't possibly reproduce that effect. Um, so any reform to the hoplite would immediately change the politics of an ancient Greek city-state, uh, even though it wouldn't feel like that in the first place. So not to put war as the central example, I'm just trying to note that there are intended and unintended effects, right? One might have the intended effect of winning a war, but have the unintended effect of destabilizing, destabilizing the politics of the country uh, that they're fighting for. In fact, history is filled with these examples. Um, you know, arguably, one of the more interesting things is that, uh, you know, the conquest of a province might prove disastrous for the domestic politics of a country. Arguably, say, the Roman Empire should have never conquered Britain because any military force sufficient to pacify Britain was sufficient also to overthrow the emperor. Mm. So there were at least two, um, actually three occasions I think the most famous one is the Emperor Constantine, who is proclaimed uh, emperor in the British Isles before you know he returns back to the European mainland and fights these extensive uh, civil wars. You know that type of intention, right? That type of change. I think it's always born out of a particular necessity, where you prototype a new system. The reason why it's born out of necessity is because the prototyping of a new system is immensely risky. And anyone who's sane about the cost-benefit analysis does not try to innovate uh, with his legion, with his, with his company, with his army. Actually, most attempts fail. Um, anyone who's not sensible simultaneously uh, is sort of unlikely to put together something. So what I feel is the strongest candidate for the organizer is the person that feels an absolute necessity to do something that sort of overrides any sort of risk aversion that comes out of an accurate understanding of just how difficult it is to do it. Because if someone is just deluded and believes it's much easier to do than it is, I, I don't think they, I don't think it works out for them that often, be it when founding a religion, leading an army, um, creating a state or anything like that. Mm, yeah. So proper, uh, assessment of the risks, proper understanding of how much work it takes to really get something accomplished. These are very important things for statecraft, for, uh, you know, religious leadership. I mean, leadership of all kinds, really. Um, I wanted to uh, get into how you began developing this theory, um, step backwards a little bit. Mm -hmm. I know that you've been developing it for more than a decade now. Um, and your primary interest is really in how can you, or, or what is it that makes civilizations fail? Or what is it that makes them not last forever? Um, and so how did you first stumble into this question? Like what, what, what about this question uh, piqued your interest? And how then did you, through the investigation of this question, uh, run into this uh, great founder theory? Well, um, I felt that 
I felt that there was a strong, there was a strong pull towards, you know, wanting to contribute to some scientific field or another. Um, I originally studied, originally studied physics, but very quickly I came to this sort of thought or realization that almost no matter what your effort is in life, um, you know, whether it's creating a company, whether it is uh, contributing as an, as an academic, as a researcher in a scientific field, uh, whether it's humanitarian in nature, right? Like, you know, deworming or, or fresh water or something like this, no matter what contribution you want to give, even something that seems as eternal as pure mathematics, all of it always just rests on society's ability to uh, not only remember it, but make continuous use of it to, to build on whatever your accomplishment is. In its absence, it doesn't matter if you have a brilliant proof, if the civilization that could understand the proof is gone in two, three, or 400 years. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have plenty of uh, people who wrote fabulous mathematical proofs who we know nothing of, right? When we read ancient Greek texts, they often reference Greek authors. And in fact, for 93% of mentioned authors, in known classical texts, uh, we don't even have we don't even have a fragment of their work, right? The majority of them, ninety three percent of them, we we don't really have fragments of their work. We just have an obscure reference. Imagine being remembered by a footnote, but more importantly, your scientific contribution, uh, your material contribution, might just be referenced but no longer built upon. So, I guess. At an early point in my life, I, I vaguely was attached to a, to a notion of progress. And then I was sort of uh, shocked when learning history to learn that it probably isn't the case. You know, I think Steven Pinker is probably wrong. Uh, there exists a progress within a civilizational system and cycle, but the civilizational systems and cycles, uh, you know, without fault, they seem to, uh, they seem to end. Like I say, there's never been an immortal human society. Uh, ours is very unlikely to be the first one. And I thought to myself, well, this must be uh, already a deep, really developed field of study. And to my surprise, I only found a few general historians and social uh, systems thinkers that had given the question thought. Uh, you know, Carol Quigley, uh, Tainter, various, various other uh, authors, some, some popular authors, ironically, had given it thought, like uh, Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, and so on. Mm. Um, there was nothing like a discipline or a field. I, I thought, and I, I, th I thought about it, and I basically looked at how, uh, you know, these historians' careers had developed, and, and why this might be just so, uh, so underdeveloped. And, and I quickly realized that, when it comes to social science, the data set, right, the data set of all social science, are past human events. We only have a really imperfect record of past human events. No matter what we do, you know, entropy increases in this universe where we live in. So how do you go explore that? Um, one possible approach is the sort of Peter Turchin cleodynamics approach, mm. where you basically, you know, try to get an army of, uh, you know, grad students or uh, hopefully more, you know, other academics to uh, sift through histories and, uh, you know, input the data manually into all sorts of databases and data sets where you intentionally try to de develop these long-term data sets 
of human society. You might try to track down the price of iron and try to track the price of iron in the Mediterranean across 3,000 years. You're going to need to read a lot of different historians and archaeologists to try to assemble something like that. Mm-hmm. And I feel this approach has a lot to recommend it, um, but I feel ultimately history is, is a little bit, it's a little bit too sparse a record um, and it's a too ambiguous record uh, to really fully nail down with such a quantitative approach. I think often before you engage in a quantitative approach, you must first engage in a qualitative approach. The two might sound like they're, they're at odds with each other, but really, if you pause to ask yourself, what does it mean to measure temperature? You realize it's not just a blue sky question. It's a very practical question, unless you have a working uh, theory and definition of temperature. Mm. And there were not already thermometers around, you know, built by people who were applying a standard set of measurements that were derived from a theoretical background. Uh, you would probably have a really hard time of figuring out how exactly to measure the temperature of things. Like the concept of it would have to be defined and thought through. There would have to be an extensive body of scientific theories. And well, of course, these also often rest on quantitative observations. They also rest on qualitative evaluations. So how can one even start to try to make qualitative evaluations? I think that um, just because of the sheer complexity of the question, and because of the infancy of sort of the science of civilization, right? We are at the very infant stage where sort of, you know, right after Aristotle, maybe sort of approaching Archimedes, maybe there's an equation or two somewhere. Um, I think I think we are nowhere near uh, sort of a, a forecasting style model, right? Uh, as you might see in science fiction, like in Harry Seldon's book series, Foundation and, and the Robot series. Yes. Um, the, um, j- just to finish the thought, the qualitative approach, I think, rests on holistic case studies. You have to do deep dives into a concrete organization, into a concrete circumstance, try to understand it holistically, and then only on the basis of that, uh, on the basis of that, can you be sure that you're not missing details. Now, maybe you're not pruning the details that you're learning. Uh, but this will alert you, right? The case study methodology naturally alerts you to things you do not yet know. Uh, a natural a person's natural interests or biases might lead them to military history. But if they took a holistic sort of, uh, again, case study approach, their attention would quickly be dragged to economics and then from economics to religion and uh, social trust and the nature of political order. And before they knew it, they would be engaged in a multidisciplinary effort, right? To understand an army or an organized religion, you have to understand the environment that they found themselves in, because otherwise you will misjudge the incentives, limits, and inspirations at play with with that particular institution. So, uh, you know, over the course of 10 years, I I undertook something like 50 or 60 deep uh, case studies. And the inspiration for this was actually Aristotle's research efforts, because Unlike modern political science professors, uh, he either undertook or sponsored the study of nearly 100 case studies into the politics of various Greek city-states. Only one of these is preserved, the so-called Constitution of Athens. It's uh, not a constitution in the modern sense. What's happening there is he is describing 
to the best of his ability, how politics actually works in Athens. He's not setting laws for how politics should work in Athens, right? So constitution in the sense of this is, you know, the organism of the polis, this is how it works. And then, you know, if you if you have these 100 studies on this excellent data set of uh, Mediterranean, the Greek Mediterranean world, where uh, all the city-states have similar technologies and similar economic limits and similar ethnic makeup and similar mythology. I actually think that uh, on epistemic grounds, uh, your conclusions are pretty strong. You know, so when Aristotle reasons about politics, he's actually operating on a data set that I think modern political political scientists would kill for. <laughs> yeah. So this uh, case study approach does uh, accomplishes a few things. One of which is that, you know, in light of the sparse amount of quantitative data, it actually gives you something, you know, real to look at that you can be fairly certain about uh, the veracity of, <clears throat> you know, if you have a set of facts, set of historical documents, you know, uh, various accounts of different kinds of events, these kinds of things. Um, it gives proper granularity to the problem so that you are investigating it in a not merely abstract way, um, but actually getting down into specific details about specific things. Um, and then the other thing that it does is it limits the scope of your investigation, right? So uh, as you were saying earlier, you know, it's very easy to sort of just wander off into all kinds of different things. You can move from economics to religion to geopolitics, et cetera, et cetera. And that can just sort of go on forever. Um, but if you have a particular case study uh, with a particular uh, well-defined uh, uh, question in mind, then uh, that does limit limit the scope of your investigation to some extent. And you can sort of present, once you feel like you've had a thorough, um, thorough investigation, uh, you can sort of present you know, your findings, uh, as it were, uh, on that particular topic. Uh, and it seems to me like you've taken this methodology of yours and you've actually applied it uh, very uh, pragmatically in terms of like the founding of your consultancy, Bismarck Analysis. Um, would you like to describe just a little bit the, the kind of work that you do uh, in Bismarck Analysis, uh, sort of uh, serving the private sector and maybe some other uh, entities as well um, in terms of providing like very in-depth, long drawn out reports um, on, on specific topics? Yes, um, Bismarck is a Bismarck Analysis is a little bit of an unusual company. You could almost think of us as a sort of hybrid between a, a think tank and a consultancy. Why? Because ultimately, I sort of uh, view it as the best, and you know, most um, I view it as the best instrument to investigate current society. Um, the motivation is intellectual first, and uh, financial second. Mm. Uh, that I think actually is uh, the true story because behind many for-profit company, companies and entities, they're often dedicated around doing something else. And incidentally, it, it happens to be profitable. <laughs> um, and, you know, the profit, the for-profit model, if mm. you think about it, actually is epistemically um, much better set up than the donor uh, fundee uh, setup. There are a whole number of difficulties with, uh, say, donating money to a nonprofit, right? Meanwhile, hiring someone to produce a deliverable that you care about for your organization's future, okay, in a way, that's much more collaborative 
rather than the strange adversariality that emerges with almost non all nonprofits, where people working at the nonprofits feel like they have to handle the donors. And, you know, there's an incentive to conceal information rather than an incentive to reveal information. The consulting arrangement is the best one I know of. And if, uh, you know, your viewership knows of a better one, I'd like to hear it. Uh, for being able to get to very closely now, many modern organizations. I wanted to sample from the present, not just from the past. And I wanted to apply then these uh, skills that, and you know, data sets that we've developed ourselves uh, to providing unique advantages to our mm -hmm. clients. Our clients are incentivized uh, to tell us the full story of their needs. We keep that in confidence, but of course it informs our future judgment and on our end, we're, of course, motivated, um, both because of our professional reputation and just because of, well, honestly, the intellectual challenge of it, of uh, delivering a very good product. Now, these very in-depth reports are sometimes paired with um, you know, action plans of various kinds. Uh, we've done reviews of entire industries, like the machine tool uh, industry. Yes. Uh, a paper on that is available uh, to the public on BismarckAnalysis.com. You can go check it out. Um, a different paper that we've also made available is uh, one on the influence of scientists during the creation of the atomic bomb, right? Or rather, it turned out after the case study, the lack of the influence of scientists when it came to the policy or political decisions. Mm. And, you know, that's a bit more historical again. However, consider how many times today uh, scientists working on in fields such as artificial intelligence or virology mm -hmm. uh, might delude themselves with the incorrect story that, you know, of course, I'm doing this scientifically very exciting thing. But, you know, in the future, if there are really some problems, you know, this authority that I've received as a scientist and the credibility I had of helping develop this technology, you know, I'm going to cash that in. Uh, yeah, I'm going to cash that in to influence organizationally what's going to happen with uh, the fruits of my labor. And that just, you know, that was not the case with the atomic bomb. It will not be the case with artificial intelligence. It will, uh, you know, not be the case with uh, any biomedical breakthroughs. The scientists themselves do not make these decisions, either organizationally or politically. Anyway, that was very interesting to a, a client of ours who was... Uh, you know, worried about the risk of artificial intelligence. Um, we mostly work with um, high net worth individuals, uh, but also sometimes companies and nonprofits and media organizations. Um, really, I am always striving uh, to in investigate and understand the sectors of society that uh, I feel are just not well understood. And if you imagine this, and if you imagine trying to approach say, um, you know, the corporate environment or academia or political decision-making or uh, these classes, uh, if you try to approach them as an anthropologist, it just doesn't really work. Um, you know, at, at, at best, you're a curiosity. At worst, you're a, a spy or a journalist or something like this. Mm. Um, you uh, don't do the work, so you don't actually end up seeing what's happening there. Um, you're given a sanitized version of events rather than being in the thick of it. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, 
I think you're absolutely correct that the consultancy model, the for-profit model does correctly align incentives, right? Both for the client as well as the researchers. It also, again, as you said, uh, creates this, you know, uh, epistemic responsibility in terms of the deliverable. Um, the machine tooling case is actually uh, quite interesting because it really becomes obvious. Uh, if, if any, For those of you who are listening, I would recommend you go uh, look that up and, and go read that report um, because it, it just becomes uh, blatantly clear that this is a super important industry. Like this is very, very yes. important for aspects of sovereignty, for readiness, uh, for all kinds of things. Um, and because it's sort of not, um, it's not very high status. People don't really think about it that much. There's very few individuals in terms of the percentage of the population actually involved, uh, it sort of just gets forgotten about, you know, and it leaves room for people like, uh, well, not people, but for uh, nations like China, for example, to take over entire industries and really subsume the uh, capacity for producing these kinds of things, for working on these kinds of industrial equipment uh, from the rest of the world. Um, and uh, it's 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 very dangerous, and it's very easy to um, to neglect, I'd say. Um, and so I, I just found that report like very very interesting uh, because it's just one of those things that's sort of fundamental to uh, a, a sort of very broad definition of infrastructure uh, that we don't really think about when we talk about infrastructure. We're usually talking about roads, or we're talking about the electrical grid. These are, of course, very, very important. You want to have good transportation networks. You want to have good uh, energy networks as well. But something as simple as, okay, uh, how are we going to do machine tooling, is just something that people don't really think about. And I, I think the deindustrialization of the West is a lot of it is driven by this sort of uh, naive or even almost entire obliviousness uh, to. Um, to these kinds of like important sectors, um, which actually leads me to my next point. Uh, you had a really, really great tweet thread, uh, which is actually uh, part of the prompting for this conversation of ours uh, on the loss of state capacity uh, or not really loss of state capacity. I mean, we can get into state capacity too, if you'd like. But state capacity is eroding, but that's a, a, a different yeah. thread, I think. Uh, on the loss of cap capacity for complex thinking in the West. Um, and this is uh, a slight pivot from the last point, but I think it, it, it ties into it in that people are not thinking very holistically, uh, for example, when they're optimizing for like a very um, superficial uh, conception of GDP, for example, right? So you can look at, for example, the, the trade war, or not trade war, but the trade relationship uh, between the United States and China as mm -hmm. a stunning example of this, where a kind of the local economic incentives have created this situation that really undermines the substrate of the nation itself, and the United States in this case, to have proper, proper capacity for all kinds of things, but also, um, you know, just generic sovereignty. And I think a lot of this has to do with the inability of people to really think uh, think complex thought. Um, and in this thread, you brought up three, uh, sorry, four things that you think um, are requisites for the infrastructure, uh, requisite infrastructure for the capacity for complex thought. Uh, one, a culture of 
open to voicing accurate observations of itself, right? So that is the corrective measures that the thing that we supposedly pride ourselves in as being yes. members of open societies, uh, which is the self-critique, the sort of um, the sort of uh, 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 movement of the ethos of the scientific method into the political and social realm. Um, two, the viable viable economic niche, niches. <clears throat> three, viable social niches, and four, viable knowledge succession. Now, obviously, each of these are um, very, could, could, could be elaborate on, elaborated on quite a bit on their own. Um, but I, I found this thread to be super, super interesting because I, I, I would feel like when, when people talk about sort of the loss of uh, capacity for, or for complex thinking, which is really a kind of like cognitive uh, degeneration or neurological um, uh, uh, neurological, I guess, um, degradation in terms of uh, our practices and inability to think about things. Uh, there's a lot of like very surface level things that people would blame for this. You know, mm -hmm. people would often point towards things like technology, uh, you know, the in invasion of the internet and social media, perhaps we're all too addicted to our smartphones and that's why we can't focus. But you're not even focusing on, um, in this thread, you're not even focusing on those particular technological aspects. You're just simply saying, uh, if the incentives, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my um, encapsulation of the four uh, requisites that you, um, that you outlined is that basically, if there aren't um, proper incentives, then the complex thought simply does not happen. That is, it, it, if there isn't a, a culture which rewards self-critique, right? Rewards critique of itself. <clears throat> if there aren't viable economic and social niches in which people will not be easily destroyed or easily um, disenfranchised, uh, for example, for providing those critiques. Um, and if there isn't a culture where the knowledge that we have accumulated is properly passed down from generation to generation, then the complex thought simply doesn't happen, not because we're um, uh, cognitive lessers than our ancestors would have been. In fact, if anything, we've probably have way more opportunities to think at a higher level. I'm sure our, our, our well, as people know, our IQs have been going up. Um, although there's some indication that those might be, might be declining or at least uh, might be test artifacts of various kinds. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we won't get into that. The so-called Flynn effect. The Flynn effect, so yes. Um, but uh, all of this, I wanted to ask you, like, how do you think about this, this problem of the loss of capacity for, for complex thinking? I, I know I've been sort of rambling on these four points, but the, the, the inability to critique your own culture, the inability for there to be viable economic and social niches, as well as, um, you know, proper knowledge secession. I think the machine tooling case, for example, is like a good, um, a, a good, uh, example of the last point, right? Where to some mm -hmm. extent, the reason these industries disappear isn't even, uh, I mean, maybe there's economic, I mean, well, there's for sure economic reasons for it. Uh, companies, you know, falling, companies getting bought out by foreign entities, et cetera. But also just people don't go into these industries, people don't pass it on to the next generation, and then it just sort of disappears. And then it's like, well, we don't have anyone who can do machine tooling. Um, so uh, how do you stand by those as the four sort of pillars oh um, yes uh, prerequisites to complex thinking and how do you think about sort of more 
technological or, or you know, uh, neurobiological explanations that people might might posit? Well, I think those explanations, you know, and of course, we're already now taking as a granted that there's been, you know, a decline in the ability to do complex thought. Usually, you know, usually I have to argue oh, yes. that point. Um, one of the things in particular um, that I think we can never underestimate is that it's, uh, you know, it's very difficult to know something if your job rests on you not knowing it, right? If your job demands you not know it. Mm-hmm. If knowledge exists out there on the internet, maybe even among anonymous groups um, or pseudonymous groups, but it is impossible to use that knowledge or to cite it back in, in a professional context, society as a whole is just dumb. It's just dumber, right? If professionals cannot raise the same arguments as anons do, then official decision-making will be completely devoid of such information. And I honestly think that in the first few months months of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, arguably the internet weirdos were right and the public health officials were wrong. Now, why can they still talk? Well, I think, you know, people were allowed to talk because we still had these remnants of a of a free internet, this bizarre phenomena that came into being in the 1990s, early 2000s. Every single year since like 2006 or so, we've had a narrowing down of the acceptable discourse online. The very idea that something you say online might be important would have been laughable in 2005. In you know 2012, well, you might be saying something online, but this is the future, right? Good things will happen here. And by 2015, 16, if you're saying something online, you are already risking your livelihood. Mm. So even for people who are not professionally commenting on a topic, right? They're not like the medical experts working at the WHO who have to be mindful of whatever the Chinese official policies were because you know China somehow held sway over the WHO for a, a whole variety of reasons. Uh, it'll even be people that may comment on any sort of medical matter or a pandemic-related issue. Uh, they might find their normal job uh, no longer there, right? Even though they're doing this in their capacity as free citizens, of course, cancellation and cancel culture is a disciplining, disciplining mechanism on the white-collar class. No one ever cancels uh, a plumber out of their position, but they do cancel lawyers or they cancel, uh, you know, software engineers. In other words, they cancel all of these people who sort of fill out the bulk of the bureaucracies that wield power in our society. And as long as that mechanism is in place, then, you know, it becomes a liability to know things, right? There's some things you're not supposed to know. There's some things that if you bring up in professional company, it's bad for your career. Um, You know, people will talk about it years later. It's, It's really remarkable how narrow-minded, how closed-minded, how petty uh, these environments have become. And as a result, all of these wonderful institutions that in theory have channels of communication have had these closed, private channels of communication just as clogged up as anything you might see online. In fact, sometimes the internet provides a better signal-to-noise ratio than official channels do. And I think, uh, you know, again, this was demonstrated in the Taiwan example, where the reason the Taiwanese government undertook some of the correct measures was that I forget, I think their um, digitalization minister or something like that 
was was literally browsing the equivalent of 4chan. <laughs> um, and I think we can honestly judge, you know, the health of various fields by their willingness. Uh, whether it might be career suicide or not, to cite something like 4chan. Uh, mm. There was a mathematical proof recently where one of the uh, cited components of the proof was a Anon post on 4chan. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks marvelously positively of the culture of mathematicians. They felt such a personal integrity that they cited a completely anonymous source rather than steal it and pretend that it's theirs, which is honestly common practice among academics today. I think academics today are... Um, often best thought of as the librarians of knowledge rather than the people who are pushing knowledge for, forward. Why? Because all of their incentives have them to be to be as narrow as possible mm. and pick a small an area to document thoroughly. Ideal an area no one else works in uh, because then there's no conflict, right? There's no conflict yeah, with your fellow an academics. An area that no one cares about. That way you won't get canceled. <laughs> Well, not just won't get canceled. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna be anyone's rival, right? Mm-hmm. You might actually get tenure, right? So, right. I think a lot of the you know the preconditions for thought include what is best described as leisure, right? Leisure in the sort of OTM sense, the sort of Roman sense and Greek sense, where you can step beyond thinking of your immediate material constraints. Mm-hmm. And have the social and material freedom to synthesize, generalize, and bring together what would otherwise be disparate strands of thought. Mm. So normal, the normal story for our society, by the way, is that mm. the specialization of knowledge has been so effective, we don't need generalists. And my view is rather the opposite, right? The specialization of knowledge has been so catastrophic that we do not have generalists anymore. And in the absence of theoretical generalists, uh, I think the specialized progress will stop as well. I think all it can do is, uh, you know, hill climb, yes. not valley cross to use a, you know, machine, machine learning uh, analogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that can be done is minor refinements. Um, you know, I think it's telling that even a hundred years ago, uh, you know, Albert Einstein had to support himself as a patent clerk rather than an academic. Of course, his many great contributions to physics came out of uh, you know, a career where he had been trained by academic physics. But mm-hmm. even though it could train him and provide him a good social environment, a hundred years ago, uh, you know, he could not get a position. And uh, I think it's very notable that as a result of this, no one uh, you know, increased the standing of Swiss patent offices. It's not like all the scientists decided, oh, now, now I'm going to go do the same thing Einstein did. Uh, rather, if anything, it retroactively added prestige to you know the academic world. So there's an interesting maneuver of who we attribute this to. But often, I think economic and social freedom is provided by these really unusual niches. Uh, I think in England in the 18th century, were it not for somewhat bored and mostly well-off and mostly politically safe, safe aristocrats, I yeah. think we probably would have had nothing like the Royal Society. I think it took individuals who were, um, you know, shielded by what you could think of as privilege. Um, but really, I think it is the necessary respite to pursue thought. There were, you know, a hundred decadent, uh, you know, out of power elites throughout human history, but only, you know, only one or two of them achieved something as remarkable as 
as the Royal Society, as remarkable as the beginning of our scientific culture. So I think there's nothing, you know, there's nothing lazy or decadent about leisure at all. It's just that, you know, sort of, sort of leisure and uh, passivity are conflated, right? Parasitism is, is mixed in, right? Parasitism wants to sort of pretend that it is performing this general reasoning function. Um, but, you know, evaluate, evaluate our modern professional class by their ability to make sense of the world. I think, I think the, the uh, evaluation is, is, is quite pessimistic. Yeah. So we, I've had uh, lots of conversations uh, on here with others as well about sort of um, whether we need to bring back a patronage type system uh, as existed before, you know, it really, I guess, doesn't strike people as um, interesting or relevant that much of the science that was done, uh, you know, leading up to most of modern science uh, was done by these individuals who had, you know, occupations elsewhere, or they were, they were funded by, um, you know, a wealthy patron of some kind. Um, they were not institutionalized, uh, a, you know, academics who were cloistered in some uh, university somewhere or, or some monastery. Um, and uh, perhaps that is what's uh, what's going to have to happen uh, long term in order to actually bring back sort of the spirit of, of intellectual free inquiry. You know, I myself, uh, you know, decided not to, to pursue an academic career at some point because I recognize sort of the constraints that would be, uh, you know, attendant to that and decided that I would be better off just trying to, uh, you know, do my own intellectual pursuits out outside of the context of needing to rely on them uh, for um, for my basic sustenance. Um, and uh, one of the things that you you brought up in, in that um, last point was sort of the 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 way in which this manifests, this sort of in economic, I mean, really, it's an economic insecurity that individuals face for speaking out. You know, the only reason I'm able to do this show is because I'm in a position where um, uh, not quite like you, but similar to you, uh, I have, uh, you know, a means of employment that is not dependent, uh, basically, on what I think in public. So I'm able to basically say what I want online, more or less, um, without having to worry about any kind of pushback because of the relationship that I have to my employer. You yourself have your own company. And so obviously you're not going to cancel yourself for saying anything <laughs> too radical. Um, the benefit of being a, a private intellectual rather than a public intellectual, though yes. you can do both, right? You can do both. Yeah, certainly some people can, can make it happen. In fact, I, I do wish that more um, public intellectuals who, for example, have the security of tenure would be willing to speak out, but there are sort of social reasons for why they um, cower away from uh, maybe saying some things that they might otherwise think in private. Uh, that being said, there is this individual problem at the level of sort of local incentives, which is that a lot of individuals, you know, everyday people, especially the white collar workers, as you were saying, um, they kind of view it as like, well, it's not really my responsibility here to make a fuss. And as you were saying earlier, whenever these institutions guard off an area of conversation and they just say, look, this area of knowledge is forbidden to not only to talk about, to even to even acknowledge in some cases. Right. Um, they are essentially making themselves dumber. Right. So our institutions are collectively dumber because of the things that they forbid. 
Um, now there's different arguments you can make about like, okay, well, maybe these are like, this is like dangerous knowledge. And so no one should talk about it. You know, these are sort of old, even theological questions in, in many cases. Um, but that being said, what do you think there is for these individuals that are sort of more or less defecting, right? They're more or less giving up, um, the opportunity to improve themselves, to improve their organizations, um, because of the fact that, you know, they're just in a scenario where like, look, it's just not worth it for them to speak up. It's not worth it for them to object to certain things. It's not worth it for them to bring certain topics into conversation. Obviously, there are lots of public policy problems that we're not going to solve if we don't acknowledge certain truths. I won't go into what those might be for the time being. But do you think, uh, I guess, are you more on the side of encouraging these individuals to speak up and to do what they can? and to perhaps risk their livelihood for doing so? Or are you more in favor of a perhaps uh, more strategic approach, more well thought out approach, one that maybe will take longer to do, where you sort of maneuver your way into being somewhat insulated so that you don't have to go reform that institution? You know, is it that you must abandon all of these corrupt institutions completely? Or do you think there's a way to sort of reform them from the inside? Yeah, I, I feel unfortunately both of these are losing strategies. I wish I could have, you know, happier news than that. But the reality is that, you know, while, you know, sort of standing up and, you know, uh, for, for one's principles, for example, or for trying to save sort of the honor of an institution that you've invested a lot of effort into, such as, for example, uh, there are many people who are deeply idealistic about uh, journalism and academia, right? These are people who have uh, spent decades in these uh, fields that believed, you know, the, uh, the, the, the moral justification and mission of those institutions. They also were not doing it for profit, right? Um, those people, I understand why, you know, they make their stand, why they try to, you know, fight. And it's important that people try to maintain functioning institutions in this way. I really do think individual, um, principled individuals are vital in maintaining functional institutions. The bad news is I think they're not that good necessarily as individuals at correcting an institution that is no longer functional. It's mm -hmm. gone off the rails. In that case, they might slow down the breakdown of the organization or the perversion, the, the corruption of an organization, um, but they're usually not going to form a strong enough internal coalition in the company to refound it. And even if they do form such a coalition, right? Um, I think unless they, they happen to be lucky enough to have an individual with basically the qualities of a founder uh, to just re-engineer the whole thing from the ground up lying around, uh, that coalition will also find it very, very difficult to uh, just have things work the way they once did. I think one of the realities of organization life is that we live with an unseen uh, patrimony, an unseen inheritance, right, that's been granted to us by others, things work. We don't always know why they work, right, or why they worked. Mm -hmm. uh, but someone somewhere, possibly long ago, possibly just a few years ago, uh, you know, they knew how things, they knew how they worked. Um, and the circumstances have changed. So maybe the best role for a new organization is, uh, is to just completely replace it, to quit 
Now, the other side of things, right? Maneuvering yourself as an individual to change the system from the inside is, I think, mostly a losing gambit because machines, you know, there are entire like uh, terrible machines of power that run in Washington, D.C., mostly making use of people who are each convinced that uh, yes. they are going to change the system from the inside. There are mm -hmm. some organizations that sort of, you know, if you imagine this uh, evolved predator uh, that have specialized in using that kind of talent. Right, that have specialized in it. So I think that can also be a difficult one. Um, as a practical recommendation I have is to sit down and have a serious look and ask yourself, is my organization, doesn't matter whether it's a school or a company, is it still dedicated to excellence? Is it dedicated to fulfilling its core mission? And if the answer is no, then I think your principled stand won't make a difference. If the answer is yes, you know, you must fight because it's probably one of the, you know, few pillars of society remaining. One part of my, my set of theories that, you know, your audience can read up online is that things are actually much less functional than they appear. That actually a small number of organizations and institutions invisibly bail out everything else. Forget the big banks. Like imagine like most of the top 500 companies in the US and most of the federal bureaucracy and most of the organized religions sort of being constantly bailed out by the few things that work, right? And imagine them just being deeply fractally broken. And we can go find evidence for this deep fractal brokenness of many nominally well-functioning institutions. Like we could dive into the university system. I'm sure you've had guests who have eloquently spoken for two hours or so on just one small element of society going a little bit wrong. Um, but I think the, the flip side of this is that any sort of work in the few remaining functional institutions is very, very high leveraged. Like you are going to produce such positive externalities, you, you could not in your dreams capture even a tiny amount of the positive externalities that a principled person maintaining or sustaining or evolving an organization truly dedicated to excellence in its mission uh, can achieve. I think, you know, I think that really uh, shouldn't be understated. Now, let's say though, that you're not lucky enough to work at one of those places. What can you do? Um, if it's possible, try to become a free person. Mm. What does being a free person mean? Uh, it means you have a social circle of uh, people who uh, you know trust you on a personal basis, who are not going to turn against you on you know the behest of an online mob. It means that economically, you are not necessarily dependent on a you know standard bureaucratic professional route. You're not in this very tenuous waged uh, position. Uh, historically, people who uh, you know receive a wage were often not quite thought of as free people. Yes. And possibly there's a real reason we should revive that bit of uh, classical political science. Wages, right? I, as they're referred to on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, the main problem of the neat is, uh, you know, the alternative to the wagey, the neat yeah. is that uh, you the know, need has no power, the, has no power because the need does not build organizations. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's sort of bizarre. You need uh, the sort of wage, ne wagey neat synthesis of uh, the person uh, that goes on and, and tries to produce uh, these new organizations. And those are a source of power, right? Like they really can be. Um, and of course, you know, I emphasize not just the economic side of things, but the social side of things, because 
uh, cliques of people and sort of fights between cliques of people can be, uh, you know, they can deeply determine the actions of organizations, right? I know of more than one nonprofit uh, that has like billions of dollars under management where I can tell you that there's an exact personal vendetta that caused like tens of millions of dollars to be spent on this set of grants rather than this other set of grants. It's really ridiculous when you compare the actual mechanics of functionality driven by a popularity contest and what feels like a high school compared to these like, you know, very um, rational seeming hundred page reports on how the money is being spent. It really brings home the disconnect between the form and substance. Um, so, okay, yeah, try to achieve some freedom, try to create an organization if you feel called for it. And, uh, you know, finally, I think perhaps holding space for others who want to create. Either it is a meetup group, it is, a, uh, it is an, uh, an event establishment of some kind, it is a meeting hall, anything at all to create new social fabric to support others that are undertaking social reform efforts. I think that's the hi- most highly leveraged thing that is win- within the competence of, uh, of most individuals, right? Mm. If you imagine someone just uh, inviting the 10 most intelligent people they know for dinner, uh, week after week, I guarantee you five years from now, people are going to talk about those dinners. 10 years from now, people are still going to talk about those dinners. 20 years from now, uh, a leading scientist or intellectual or uh, you know, public personality will have been known to have gotten their start at those dinners. Think of how trivial it is to organize that, it, how hard it is, how somehow no one does something on that tier. And I think the reason is, again, the sort of social... Maintaining and holding a social fabric is this it's a very thankless job, uh, but just so vital, so vital for these efforts. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think, you know, I tell people all the time that building culture is actually very, very difficult. Uh, in some ways, it's difficult than solving like, you know, mundane logistical problems that uh, people seem to, seem to be very occupied with and that seem more practical. But actually having, like you said, a, a coherent social fabric um, one in which, you know, what you're describing with the Denny Park. Well, because you're creating a, a microcosm of functionality, right? Mm-hmm. You're personally curating a social space where people can speak. Yes. There's no like material punishment for doing so. And there is a focus on excellence, right? So it's not just venting uh, and releasing our feelings about, oh, we're so oppressed or something like that. It's more about sharpening, you know, you know, uh, there's a Slovenian saying that, you know, uh, we must sharpen each other, right? As, yes. as people and as intellectuals. And, so this um, is a, uh, this yeah. is the Ben Franklin uh, Junto approach, right? Uh, he famously yes. did all kinds of these and he had a, a very strict set of rules for how the conversation would be conducted. They met every Friday. Um, and also there was requirements for who could be part of the conversations as well. So you had to have a certain amount of economic independence. You had to be able to contribute mm-hmm. to the group, um, not just, anybody could come in. Um, and I think that's, you know, maybe uh, something we don't want to emphasize too much because we're just trying to motivate people to get to do these kinds of things in the first place. But I think that is something that's also important as well. You have to have people that are able to stand on their own individually to some extent in order for the group not to falter. Um, the other thing I, I really like to emphasize a lot with people that I talk to is the development of a real taboo against defection. You know, this is something that you see uh, for example, that developed in, uh, you know, Soviet societies, right? Anyone that was under the, my family comes from the Soviet Union. 
uh, if you came from a so, regime, so you're pre-adapted to the future. <laughs> if you came from a totalitarian regime like that, then you know that on an interpersonal level, the <clears throat> taboo against defection on one another has to be extremely strong because the state yeah. has an interest in almost every organization or institution in that in a place like that has an interest in getting individuals to defect on one another. And so you have to develop this very strong culture of anti-defection and to also be very ruthless with anyone that is found to be defecting or doxing or anything like that um, in order to actually for people to even feel safe enough intellectually uh, to, you know, explore different areas, to talk to one another, frankly, about things and to not be just uh, repeating you know, ideological points. <clears throat> um, right. Yes. So all of this is, I think, is very, very important to cultivate. Um, I have, I think, one more uh, question for you, Samo, and then uh, we will conclude our time here. And thank you. You've been very generous so far, um, which is, do you feel like these problems that we've talked about with regard to, you know, the, the formation of institutions, the way in which institutions uh, tend to be set in motion and then decay over time? right? They degrade. Um, the uh, necessity for uh, very exceptional individuals to found institutions, the decline in complex thought that we talked about uh, at length as well, and the reasons for that being, as well as sort of these more, you know, micro uh, incentives that sort of contribute to this. Do you think that all of those are contributing to the general problem of state capacity? And how do you think we could reinvigorate state capacity. Um, because I think in order for the West to not become subservient to some other civilizational, uh, let's say, shelling point, uh, it has to, uh, it has to, you know, again, be able to stand on its own two legs, whether that's, whether that's Europe or the United States. Uh, I, I, I would imagine, the, you know, it, the future that you and I would like is something like the Europe and the United States working together against maybe other powers um, that represent, you know, different civilizational um, inheritances. Uh, <clears throat> so do you think that uh, there needs to be sort of a top-down approach to this, as you described earlier with the great founder theory? Or do you think there needs to be more of a bottom-up thing? We've been talking a little bit about the, the moves that, you know, individuals might, might make on a, on a small level, starting from the bottom, um, as well as sort of the higher level what you would do if, for example, you were given a magic wand and you were in charge of, uh, let's say, reforming the university system or something like that. How do you think we salvage uh, our state capacity, which seems to be rapidly declining these days? I mean, um, I would identify the decay of uh, state capacity for, uh, you know, either the United States or, or European countries or other Western countries. Uh, I would identify it as a general symptom of the failure, uh, the systemic sort of bureaucratic failure over time, where, you know, I think that a bunch of non-technically non-government organizations have undergone a similar decay. Like, again, the university system, of course, it has a massive state component, but there's a, you know, non-state component to it as well, right? You know, Cambridge and Oxford still have significant autonomy from the British government, for example, or, uh, you know, the funding source of, say, something like Harvard or Yale 
are substantially, you know, independent, you know, modulo, you know, DOD um, subsidy to various scientific laboratories. But, you know, Yale and Harvard, they're not doing science, they're doing law and management sort of. MIT maybe is uh, more dependent on the DOD, whether or not they want to admit it. Um, But still, I do think state capacity is very important. I think, um, you know, focusing on on sort of reestablishing old high watermarks might not be the best approach because a lot of the political energies that brought about high state capacity in various countries, like you say, the United States circa, you know, 1945, right? That's some state capacity right there. The atomic bomb, uh, massive feats of logistics and uh, globe spanning influence and all of that. Uh, the political forces that brought that into being have often already been spent. So uh, I think for some of these aspects, uh, what we might first want to see is a narrow focus on the functionality of just a few key aspects of Western states, followed by uh, a sort of you know great scrapping of all the stuff that just doesn't work. Not the way libertarians might think of it is it cannot work or it could never work or it never did work, but more like this does not work currently. Uh, this you know machine either was built for a very different environment or has broken down. It's time to melt it for parts. It's time to retire the employees, have them go home, and uh, you know open up the space either to growth from the civil society. I hesitate to say the private sector because I feel, you know, large corporations are just as bureaucratic and dysfunctional at this stage of history, mm-hmm. but let's say entrepreneurial rather than existing management. Uh, and then I think a decade or two down the line, the political energies accumulate again for the recreation, the rebirth of sort of whatever organ of state you had in mind. And possibly we have a book blueprint. I hate to be so, you know, cliche as to use the person everyone uses as an example, right? Everyone uses Elon Musk as an example, but I think it's just so well-suited to this. Mm. Do you reform NASA through a congressional act or do you create this insane company that tries to, you know, half bully NASA, half impress NASA into hiring you to build its rockets? And, uh, you know, I think the, were it not for SpaceX, it's quite possible the Chinese would be flying people to the to their space station, and the U.S. would continue to be incapable of sending people into space. Remember, between the retirement of the shuttle and the first sort of arrival of a SpaceX capsule to the International Space Station, there was a whole period where, uh, you know, America could not launch people into space. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. Maybe there'll be a very highly functioning NASA again 20 or 30 years from now. But if it is, it'll be because the aerospace talent, project management talent, and uh, you know, vision was cultivated in this sort of non-state reservoir. And I think maybe that's the best way to think of state capacity. State capacity can be thought of often as a, you know, among the fruits or flowers of a thriving society. But you need the roots, you need the stem, you need the, the leaves. Well, that's beautiful. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, Samo. This has been an absolutely enjoyable conversation. Um, before I let you go, um, where should people go to find out more about your work or more about your company? 
uh, and just uh, hear or read more more about your ideas in general? Well, um, you know, you can find all of my writing on my website, uh, samoburja.com. So S-A-M-O-B-U-R-J-A.com. Um, you can also find me on Twitter and, uh, you know, my company's uh, website, uh, bismarckanalysis.com. Um, you know, we have published uh, some public papers and there's also a, uh, you know, a newsletter, both a, a free variant and a paid variant uh, that people can follow there if they want to see more of our research. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate thank it. You. This has been a lot of fun.